The Bloom Podcast about bioeconomy. Hi, I'm Juliet Chunk from The Bloom Project. In our podcast series, we talk to different experts to understand the potentials, but also the limits and challenges of bioeconomy. For this episode, I welcome Johan Sanders from the Netherlands, who has more than 40 years of experience with bio-based economy. In the following interview, we will speak about his personal approach, about the potentials and also the challenges of bioeconomy, and his research on how biomass can be used more efficiently. Johan, just to point out a few things about you, you started your career in a fermentation company. You have been research director of a big such company. Later, you were a professor at the Wageningen University, and now you're a member of several government committees and also a consultant in the field of bioeconomy. So, Johan, what motivated you to work in this topic? Well, as you said, um, I started more than 40 years ago in a fermentation uh, company. We made enzymes, yeast and penicillin. And we uh, used as a resource, as a starting material, molasses from uh, sugar industry. It's a waste product from the sugar industry. And it contains quite a lot of sugar. And it was cheap sugar. But it didn't contain only sugar. It also contains a lot of other materials, like minerals, uh, fertilizers, that you could use in a different way. And uh, what we did is um, we made the yeast. And then the residue, well, that was a problem to us. And we have to purify it, and we have to concentrate it, and that costs a lot of energy, that costs a lot of capital cost. And then, well, we could have a fertilizer that still, with a lot of logistic problems, should go back to the fields. Mm-hmm. And you see that more often, that uh, we make a product, and we don't bother about the residues, the waste products. We leave that to somebody else. And we say it's very nice that he can use it, and he can use it, but it creates another problem, as I already explained. Uh, Another example could be our animal feed. Also, often we use residues, but also we can use primary crops and um, biomass or plant material in general contains... A lot of different components. Mm-hmm. It can be starch, it can be fat, it can be minerals, it can be uh, sugars, it can be cellulose, it uh, can be a lot of things. And moreover, an animal needs only a few things, and not all, mm-hmm. and certainly not all in the ratio that it has been given to the animals. So they make a lot of waste. And uh, manure, if it's little, well, it's not a problem, it's a nice product. But if there's a huge amount of waste, it becomes a problem. And that motivated me very early onwards that uh, you should separate the different fractions, the different components, so that each of the components can have its best goal, its best application. And then there will be no waste. And if you do it in the right way, you can make money. There is no waste. And also people can benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So 
I guess biomass is the waste that can be used for valuable products afterwards, or is that my own definition of it? No. <laughs> biomass is the general word for all plant material uh, from which we can make all kinds of products. Moreover, to substitute uh, fossil resources like oil, gas, coal and things like that. And biomass can be residues, but biomass can also be primary materials. So crops that you harvest from the field, that as we are doing for many, many decades, of course, for food, uh, but you can also harvest crops for non-food applications. And we are also doing that for a long time, like, for instance, the potato starch that we use in the paper industry or the textile industry or we use wood for construction for making houses or making paper and things like that so we are used to it but gradually uh, we need to do that more in the before the industrial revolution uh, a lot of our products came from nature came from plants and um, because industrial revolution was able to make cheaper and cheaper products from fossil resources, mm. well, the uh, natural products have been outcompeted. We can re give them a, a new uh, start. Yeah. And of course, the, we have learned a lot of new technology and new insights so that we can expand that very much more than 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, why do you think it's important to invest in a bio-based economy? Why? Well, um, we have um, a world, as I already said, that is very dependent on fossil resources. And those fossil resources have brought us a lot of prosperity and wealth. But at the same time, um, as a consequence of using non-renewable fossil resources. So you start from oil that you dig up from the soil, you burn it to something, you make CO2. And initially the CO2 was only not that, that much. Yeah. But nowadays, um, and especially the last 20 years, we realized that the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has augmented so and so much that it has influence on our climate. Mm -hmm. Climate is changing, the world is heating up, and that is an effect of our use, our tremendous use of the fossil material. We have to look for other solutions. We cannot continue in doing that with the fossil. Um, and biomass can be one resource renewable resource that can help us to reduce the CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. Not 100%. We need other forms of renewable uh, energy. But biomass, if you use that in the right way, where biomass has advantages over electricity that you make from solar power or electricity that you make from wind or water energy or whatever, then if you use that advantage, then again 
you can benefit for that in reducing CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you can earn money. Mm -hmm. And you personally have been trying to, to do little things or maybe big things to reduce CO2 emissions. For example, you came all the way here on yeah. your bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was a little thing. So, so yeah, it was a little thing, but I think it makes a little yeah. bit of a difference. At least, I guess one person can change the world a little bit at a time. So um, yesterday you said how much CO2 emission did you have in the whole trip? Oh, my trip um, is um, from the Netherlands to here. Um, it was less than 10 kilograms of uh, CO2. And I made a calculation when you are on the bicycle for 750 kilometers. I can do that with energy from plants, from my food, which is in energy content the same as one liter of petrol. Wow. So I can do 750 kilometers on one liter of petrol wow. energy. That's very impressive. That's impressive, not yeah. for the bicycle, but it's impressive how much cars are consuming. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you give us a brief overview what exactly bio-based industries are? What they are or what they should be? Um, uh, let's start with what they are and what they yeah. should, and then go to what they should um, be. Well, I think bio-based industries, they use renewable materials as their main resource. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, well, not that many of that industries yet. Maybe paper industry is, is an industry like that. Uh, they cut wood, they pulp it. It costs a lot of energy to pulp it, but they make the energy from their own residues. They could do that in a much more efficient way but in a sense, that is a bio-based economy, okay. bio-based industry. Okay. Um, in fermentation industry, well, we used a lot of fossil energy as well to stir in a big fermenter tank where sugar is converted to products like yeast or penicillin. You have to stir, you have to put in a lot of oxygen with a compressor you have to cool, which means a lot of pump in, uh, energy. That is a lot of uh, fossil energy up until now. If you would improve those processes and do it without oxygen, you can benefit from that because the process becomes much more efficient. Um, you need less capital. And another point is that you don't need that much of fossil energy to stir, to do the compression, to do the cooling, because if there's no heat produced, you don't need to cool. Um, in the future, that, well, what I said, the anaerobic fermentation could be one of the future. Um, but important is that those industries, they need to earn money. And often people in renewable resources, they only care about the planet, about the environment. And that's not enough. I always start a project looking at people, planet and profit. Because if a company is not able to make profit, it will not happen. Or only a very few people will do it. 
and that will not have any effect on the world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a general answer that industries, um, well, sh should start very early onwards because some people believe that to fulfill people and planet and profit is impossible or not always possible. I think it is almost always possible, but you have to start thinking and thinking and designing your project and take your time. It easily takes 10 years or 15 years. And if you are a company with shareholders that want money back in one year time, well, it's a di difficult uh, challenge. Yeah. Uh, based on your experience, what would you say are the biggest potentials of biomass? Um, well, you should look at, um, again, at the planet and the profit. Mm. Um, there's what we call an eco-pyramid. Uh, in the top of the pyramid, there are very high value products, but the volume of the market is very small. Mm -hmm. On the bottom of the pyramid, there is large volume, like energy, but the value is very small. And in order to fulfill planet and profit, you should go into the middle of the, um, of the pyramid. And in the middle, there are three groups of products that combine enough volume with enough value. And those products groups are proteins for animal feed. They are chemicals, building blocks, and they are materials like, uh, well, wood, of course, is a material uh, that you can, can use. Above those three, there are very high value, uh, food or food ingredients or pharmaceuticals. And that is very nice for only a few people. It will not the, the planet will not benefit. And below, the planet will benefit, but there is no money for that without subsidies, and somebody has to pay for it. So, I focus on those three groups, proteins, chemical building blocks, and materials. Mm -hmm. um, and what would you say are the biggest challenges which have to be taken into consideration? Um, well, big challenges, of course, are that we have large industries, large companies that are very influential not only in governments, but also influential uh, on the public. Public, They do advertisements, they have various ways to help their own business to grow. And with bio-based economy, it might be competitive with their what they are doing now. Um, and since they are so powerful, it is quite difficult to... Um, well, to counteract. Also, a lot of people have grown up uh, and have been taught how the world is and how the world will be in the future. Mm. We all have been educated and grown up that there will always be enough energy, mm -hmm. that there always will be enough food in the Western countries at least, uh, or enough agriculture. 
and now in the past 10 years those paradigms they have changed enormously we will be short in mm -hmm. fossil energy we will be short in um, agricultural products even in, in Europe um, and it's very difficult to change your mind um, with that growing population and on the world we are growing in 2050 probably to 10 billion people while in I think in the 70s it was one third of that yeah so it's in 80 years we triple the public the population at that time when we were with a few people in the world our activities did have little effect and they disturbed maybe only in local terms the environment but certainly they didn't disturb on global terms the environment and now as I already indicated on greenhouse gases CO2 and other gases well gas can migrate over the world so our atmosphere has now a high concentration and it will get a higher concentration so that is a, a global disturbance and somebody has defined planetary boundaries and the, those are uh, indicators of how we well what the world can carry mm -hmm. and um, as I said CO2 already is overstepped but two other factors are also already overstepped one of them is loss in biodiversity mm -hmm. and biodiversity well you can say why bother then we have little uh, we have no um, uh, wild animals anymore or we have yeah uh, no uh, uh, bees anymore or whatever but a world without those animals will have no food mm -hmm. anymore um, and we are approaching more and more that that problem we already overstepped it um, another factor that we already overstepped is the use of nitrogen fertilizer um, we learned to do that once we were able to make ammonia from nitrogen from the air which is now mo just more than 100 years ago which was enorm helpful for agriculture to produce more and more and more from the land so that was very very beneficial but we use far too much and um, well that causes a lot of environmental problems as well mm -hmm. and now population will grow and grow um, well we will eat more meat on average not in Europe we can choose to eat less but in Africa uh, or in Asia where they don't eat a lot of meat well they can only grow and with the enormous amount of people the average in the world that will eat meat will grow we will need more and more protein to feed not only ourselves but also the animals and if we continue to do that in the same inefficient way as we are doing now we will need twice as much nitrogen 
and nitrogen has already been overstepped. Mm. So the only solution is, well, to make uh, our use of nitrogen much more efficient. Mm. And if you know that uh, in our food, say if one kilogram is in our food, we need eight kilograms of nitrogen as the input. So seven kilograms are lost somewhere. I can extend that to energy. If you have one uh, kilocalorie of energy or 2000 kilocalories that we normally get to eat our uh, daily food, digestible energy, we need about 20 fold more energy, 10 fold from biomass, from our food itself, tenfold from the fossil to do the transportation or to do the harvest, to do the cooling, to do the processing, uh, everything will we need to do to feed ourselves. And again, if we would improve that use efficiency uh, and we don't need 20 fold input but only 10 fold input which mm -hmm. is still very high, then we will make available enough energy to drive all cars, so which is enormous. Mm -hmm. And that's about equivalent to 20% of our total energy consumption. So the first challenge is to become much more efficient in our food supply. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, that's a challenge as well. That's a big challenge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, from your vast experience, could you give us, like, a practical example of a project or um, an innovation or activity in this field that is really interesting to share with the world? Yeah, well, I think um, um, grass biorefinery would be a very interesting one. In Europe, uh, we have about 70 million hectares of grassland out of the 170 million agricultural land. So it's quite considerable. And in the world, uh, it's even more. Not all grassland has enough water or fertilization, of course. Some uh, are problematic. But grass is everywhere in the world. And grass contains a lot of protein. And now it is not used in an efficient way. In the Netherlands or in Europe, we feed cattle with grass and they make meat and milk. Uh, but they do it not in a very efficient way. And we can help to improve that efficiency by splitting up the different components of grass. First, to open up the structure, which the cow can do, but only partially, but we can help it with a machine and open it up so that even if we would give that to the cow, the cow would do already better. But in the grass there are two types of proteins. Proteins that are very well suited for cattle and proteins that are not that good for cattle. And that last part, we, if we give that to pigs, then pigs can benefit very well from it. And cows, they get the, the other good part. In so doing, 
on the same hectare that is now used, where we can make a certain amount of uh, milk, say 10,000 liters of milk per year, per hectare, um, we can have the same amount of milk, and in addition, we have the pigs. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, we can make 50% more animal protein from the same food. Mm -hmm. um, I can even improve this system if we can improve the yield on the field. Now, in the Netherlands, we can have 10 tons of grass, dry matter, per hectare per year. If we, in between the grass, will also seed plants that can fixate nitrogen from the air, and if we combine the, the two crops, grass and those legumes, as they are called, then the field production will go up by 50% without the need for more fertilizers. And if we have 50% more yield on the field, and in addition 50% more benefit from the crops in animal feed, then per hectare, one and a half times one and a half is more than two times yeah. the yield. And that is very important because if you realize that our agricultural land in the world uh, is about 1500 million hectares, two thirds of that is just for animal feed. And if our world population is growing and growing, we need more animals and we need more inefficient way produced food and mm -hmm. feed, then we would need maybe 1000 or 1500 million hectares more. Mm -hmm. And that's not available in a, um, f f in a fertile soil, in a good agriculture soil. We have to cut um, tropical rainforest for that or other um, agriculture, or sorry, other natural land that we shouldn't touch because of the biodiversity. Mm. So grass can help and grass biorefinery can help to produce the protein, even animal protein, on much smaller areas and even on areas that are already in the agricultural domain of today. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a good example. and. What we did is also work on small scale. Um, the advantage of small scale, and what I mean by that, is 500 hectares or 1000 hectares, is that if you do the biorefinery and collect the grass or the crop in general of that 500 hectares, you take those substances that you need for the animals or for bio-based economy and you leave on the f on the field the fertilizers. Johan, just to clarify, doesn't it also cost energy to split up this protein from grass? It costs energy, certainly. And um, what we did in the past uh, five years with this project, um, we have improved the, um, uh, the amount of protein that we can uh, produce in this way 
and we have reduced the amount of energy. Still, that is not good enough. Um, we are using fossil energy, but uh, our future plans are to use the residual sugar um, that is in low uh, concentration, still present, and make biogas from that residual sugars so that we can make our own energy for that biorefinery, so that it will be very mm -hmm. much self-supporting. Uh, the Netherlands has a long experience and is front-runner in bioeconomy in Europe. You are part of different government committees working and strengthening bioeconomy. Based on your experience, could you give us a picture of the political discourse? What has changed? Mm -hmm. Well, you said Netherlands uh, was a front-runner. I think that is true in environmental problems. We are a small country with a large population and not only a human population, but a lot of animals as well. Um, so we were very uh, cautious about all kinds of environmental, local environmental problems. And I think we have developed a lot of technology to cope for that. And there is also some feeling that uh, you shouldn't spoil environment. But our Netherlands society or economy is also a very fossil economy, very much based on energy and energy and energy. And uh, we had cheap energy with oil for the chemical industry. We had cheap energy from natural gas in the Netherlands Um, so we use that a lot, and our Ministry of uh, Economic Affairs or Finance uh, benefited very much of that uh, cheap resources. And that also indicates that the mindset was very much on energy. Now, with I think with the help of Europe, um, and really of the power of Europe, and certainly with the uh, Paris 2015 conference, where the world countries set limits to CO2, and set limits to how much our world uh, should warm up. Um, Europe helps us enough, uh, enormously, to uh, make CO2, greenhouse gases, as the challenge, and not energy as the challenge anymore. Mm. And that is, a, I think, a, a big revolution. Also, I see in the political domain very early signs that people are not only interested in greenhouse gases, but also in biodiversity loss. Nitrogen, I've never heard a politician about that, but that will take uh, some time. Uh, you said before the interview that you started to understand the economy of scale and how it can, how to circumvent this to become less dependent on major capital investments that traditionally are a burden to radical innovations. Could you explain that some yeah. more? Um, as I said, uh, I worked 25 years in industry mm -hmm. and then I changed my uh, job to uh, academia. But in my industrial life, Three times I had a problem with my boss. 
because we did very nice scientific work, development of new processes. Uh, we had a pilot process that cost 5 million or even more uh, euros to be developed. And then the commercial scale production should be set up. And that would cost 50 million or 100 million or 200 million. And then at three occasions, my boss, he said, I don't dare. It's a first of a kind process. And I don't dare in investing such a large amount of money. Let our competitors try first. And if it works, well, we also will do it. Well, in a bio-based economy, where we are changing our raw materials, not for three processes, not for hundred processes, but for thousands of processes, and they all will be dependent on new processes, first-of-a-kind process, if they all meet bosses like I did, with shaking knees that don't dare to take a risk, then you have a problem. Then bio-based economy development will go very, very slowly. The reason why when I was at the university, I wanted to understand what is the reason b behind economy of scale. If you build a factory 10 times bigger, well, the capital cost is only four or five times more expensive. So there's a benefit in larger and larger scale. We are all educated like that. That works in the petrochemical industry. That works in a lot of other industries. But that not always works in the bio-based. If you have to have a big factory that have to collect crops, therefore from very long distances, well, it costs more to transport that than if it is a small factory. But what is even more important is that in the process of that factory, often there's a lot of minerals, they are often diluted, because otherwise you cannot process the crops. And those minerals, they have to go back. And if you serve a large area of, say, 50,000 hectares, well, you have to bring it back to 50,000 hectares. But if you only can bring it back to 500 hectares, then there is very, very little cost to do that. There are other advantages of small scale. If there is no market yet for your products, and you can start on small scale, then you can gradually grow your processes. Maybe you can grow the volume of one pro a process, or, which is, might be better, to have several different processes. So the number of factories will increase and not the size of the factories. When you have a small chemical factory, if we will be able to do that, there will be also much more chance to come with new chemicals, which nowadays was very difficult. The last 30 years, there are maybe one or two new chemicals have been introduced in this world because the other strong chemicals like polyethylene and polypropylene are so big and so cheap that it will be difficult to come with a new chemical 
that will outperform the quality at a cost that is competitive with polyethylene. And where you cannot have the benefit of economy of scale, mm. which polyethylene has. But when you can build chemical factories on a much smaller scale, well, you can start with a factory taking much less risk and introduce a new chemical at that level already. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another advantage of the knowledge behind the economy of scale. Mm. When you talk about chemical industries, can you maybe explain it for the listeners? What kind of industries are they? What do they produce? That chemical factories in general, they make plastics. Uh, they make plastics from uh, oil as a resource, but also they need energy. So they use gas or coal for energy. And they make, as I said, polyethylene, polypropylene, polyesters, polyamides, um, well, all kinds of of nylons, those kinds of products. Your PET bottle is a polymer, a polyester actually, that is synthesized of two chemical building blocks. Um, well, each of them are produced separate and then they are polymerized and you make your polymers, synthetic polymers, and they often have applications as a plastic or for construction or in cars or wherever our world makes 300 million tons of those products every year. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. And you can make those products also from, from biomass or a number of products. You can make them in economic ways much better than some other products. So that is what I said in the beginning. If you have um, biomass, that can be sugars, and sugars contain carbon and hydrogen as also in oil, but in addition to that, sugars also contain oxygen. And that is not in oil. So with that sugar, we should not make products that contain only carbon and hydrogen, we should make products that contain carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. And when I talk about polyesters or polyamides, those types of plastics, they have an advantage if you make them from biomass, from sugars. If you make polyethylene from sugar, there is no advantage. There might be even a disadvantage. So you have to make the right choices, mm -hmm. how to use your biomass in the best way. So what developments do you hope for in the bio-based industries or economy? Um, well, I said in order to become more efficient with our raw materials, with our biomass, with our plant materials, we should split them up into the different components. And that is a very nice thing because then more people can benefit from it. 
and we need less other raw materials. The drawback of making more than one product is that we have to serve several markets, that we have the need for a lot of more um, processes and knowledge. And one single industry can never do that. We have to collaborate. And collaboration is maybe one of the most difficult things that we have to learn in the future. A collaboration is certainly different if you speak different languages. Mm -hmm. uh, what I mean with different languages is not English or German or Dutch, but is that in the food industry you talk with totally different concepts than in the energy business or in the chemical business or on agriculture in the primary sector. And if you need to collaborate, each of these players, they need to talk to each other and understand each other. And that is very difficult because we haven't learned that. So I think that is one of the big challenges, but also the what I hope that we will be able to, to learn mm -hmm. in practice. Again, we can start with two products and uh, smaller projects to do that, that are less risky in regional projects. Uh, to close the interview, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think we covered quite a lot. Um, what, um, what is important, and maybe I say it, I stress it again for the second time, yeah. um, but that we are overstepping our planetary boundaries is a very, very serious thing. Mm -hmm. We hear on television that we need two Earths to live. And that's very easy to say, well, it's not required. My life is okay. But if you understand why we need two Earths, and we don't, we'll never have two Earths, mm. uh, we have to do it with what we have, and that we are already overstepping, We are using, well, our family capital, so to say, our population capital. Um, well, that is a very serious point to be addressed by our society, by our politicians and scientists. Yeah? Yeah, thank you very much, Johan. It's been very interesting talking to you. Okay. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Dear listeners, thank you for listening. Stay tuned to the Bloom podcast for more interviews and talks with experts on bioeconomy-related topics. For more information on bioeconomy and the Bloom project, please visit our website www.bloom-bioeconomy.eu.